Well, good morning, Eagle Church. Uh, my name is Justin, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And if uh, you are newer around here this summer, uh, first of all, welcome. We're honored that you're here. But you maybe have also noticed that our lead pastor, Eric, hasn't been speaking. We've heard from a lot of different people, and that's been really cool. Well, today, you get the worship guy. So uh, you know that we're struggling to fill the pulpit when they ask the worship guy to preach, so... Uh, this morning, I'm really excited to share with you all, we are, uh, we're actually going to talk about worship, which I define, and this is from Louis Giglio, he says that worship is our response to what we value most. That's our definition that we'll go by. And we're not talking about worship because I'm the worship guy, but we're talking about worship because I believe firmly it's what we were created to do. It's who we are as people, and, and it's something that's only meant for God, and worshiping rightly has massive implications on our life. Oh yeah, middle school and high school, you guys can go. <laughs> uh, when I was hired uh, to lead the worship ministry here about three years ago, I kind of had, had two deep convictions that I held really close. The first being that whenever we gather in this space uh, as a family called Eagle Church, that everything that we do would only be about bringing Jesus glory. And then the second one was that if our worship was contained to the walls of, these, of this church, so if we came and we gathered, we worshiped, we sang songs, and then it never affected our lives, and we completely missed the point. And so it's with the latter of these two convictions that we're going to spend our time this morning. But before we do that, Esther, you can come on up. I asked Esther Aristine, she's one of our students, she's going to read the scripture we're going to be in this morning. And this is something Eric's done a couple of times in the past, and it's actually something that the church has done for centuries past. And so we'll all stand together for the reading of the word, and... Uh, She's going to read, and when she gets done, she'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and we'll respond with thanks be to God. Let's go ahead, Esther. All right, we're in Mark chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them, Jesus and the Pharisees, debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. Thanks, Esther. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into this this morning. God, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for this family called Eagle Church. And this morning, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts to hear your word, to understand more deeply what it means to follow you, to honor you with our lives. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. So, so I'm a musician, and with that comes some quirks, and my wife would call these uh, fundamental character flaws, right? And uh, 
one of those quirks that if you get around musicians, we spend a lot of time talking about gear, which is like musical equipment. We talk about, like if you're a guitar player, we talk about the right guitar, having the right amp, having the right effects pedals, listening to the right music, all this kind of stuff, right? Well, a couple years ago, I played in a band and we had a chance to record an album, which is really cool. And the guy that, that recorded and produced our album, his name is Tom, he's like this world-class musician. He's unbelievable. And so I got around him that first day we were working together. I kind of I went fanboy on him. I was like, Tom, like, tell me about how do you sound like that? How do you get those sounds out of your guitar? And, and tell me about your guitars and your amps and your pedals and who you've been listening to. I ask him all these questions, right? And Tom's response to me was simply, man, your gear is fine. You just need to have good hands. I was like, what? No, like, tell me about your gear. No, like, you need to have good hands. You just know how to, you need, you need to know how to play the guitar. You need to be a good guitar player. It's, it's kind of like, if you want to be a painter, you don't buy the best paintbrush and the best paint and the best canvases and then expect to paint a masterpiece, right? Or if you're a, a you want to cook, you don't buy the best pots and pans and utensils and, and then go cook something expecting for it to be like Gordon Ramsay or Jane Bach or something, right? Um, and this is a little more personal. If you go to your local uh, open gym for men's and you bring the best basketball shoes, the flashiest shoes, it doesn't mean you're going to be the best player, right? I know from experience it doesn't work. Um, but he got at the essence of what it meant to be a great guitar player. You have to have great hands. This morning, I want to ask, what's the essence of our faith? This is the very question that the teacher of the law was asking Jesus in Mark 12. He was asking the most, what was the most important requirement? There were 613 of these laws given in the Old Testament. And this was a really common debate that they had back then. It's kind of like the modern debate about who the greatest basketball player of all time was. Is it LeBron James or is it Michael Jordan? And we all know the answer, right? It's neither. It's Reggie Miller. Aren't you guys from Indy? Come on. Have you seen a shot? Anyways, so there have been centuries of debates going on about what the commandment was, and uh, Jesus finally gave this answer that they'd been looking for. So let's look at what he says uh, in verse 29. Jesus says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we're going to pump the brakes right there. Uh, it's really important that we understand this to get worship right. So write this down. Only one is worthy of worship. Here Jesus recited what's called the Shema. The Shema, uh, which is found in Deuteronomy 6, was the central component of Jewish prayer. So these relig religious leaders and teachers, they knew this really well. And this is a fundamental theological and worldview statement that Jesus made. It's where, it's where our Judeo-Christian monotheism finds its roots. And this statement is saying that there's only one God, and it's the Lord God, it's Yahweh. It's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Like Julia said last week, it's the great I am. He's the only one worthy of worshiping. So why does it matter that we get this right? It matters because if our worship is misplaced, we lose our purpose, we lose our identity, and we end up idolizing things that were never meant to be worshiped and that don't fulfill us. If worship is our response to what we value most, we simply have to follow the trail of outcomes when our worship is misplaced. So we value comfort and stability above everything else. And what happens, we respond by working more and doing whatever's necessary to get ahead. We live with anxiety about the uncontrollables of life. When we value status and what others think of us, 
We live in isolation, right? Because we don't want people to see our true character. We spend all our energy with image maintenance and we push our kids too hard to be successful. We become insecure and pride becomes the predominant attribute of our lives. When these idols and any others are placed before God, we miss out on this promise that Jesus gave us in John 10 for full life. True worship is only directed toward the one true God. All right, let's keep going. Verse 30. Here's the greatest commandment. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So we know who we're to worship, right? The one true God, Yahweh, great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jesus tells us what worship looks like here. It looks like love, love. So write this down. True worship means loving God with everything. And this is where it gets challenging for us. I would say that that many of us acknowledge like, yeah, there's one true God. That's who I'm worshiping. I think many of us would say, I'm trying to love God with, with everything that I have. And if that wasn't true, you wouldn't have gotten up early and come to church on a Sunday or tried to drag the kids in and that kind of thing, right? But I do wanna push us a little bit. If worshiping God or loving God requires all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, can that be fully expressed and experienced on a Sunday morning? And I I hope that I never come across legalistic or all about the rules about what it means to follow Jesus. And and in fact, I think that, that God's grace is far bigger and far wider than we have any understanding of. But I just have to think that it requires more than 10 to 11, 15 on Sunday mornings. Consider like your important relationships. So if I tell my wife or you tell a close friend or somebody, hey, you've got an hour this week, that's probably not gonna go well or I'll push a little bit more. What are you willing to rearrange your calendar around? So if I said, hey, I've got a foursome at at Golf Club of Indiana this afternoon, two guys dropped out, I've got two spots. You can come golf for free. Guys are gonna be like, I'm on it, right? I'm gonna rearrange my calendar. Or ladies, especially if you have young kids, if your husband comes and says, I got a sitter, you're going out with the girls tonight. You're gonna rearrange your calendar. Or personally, if somebody says, uh, I've got a bass boat and we're gonna go fishing today, I'm gone, right? So there are things that we will rearrange our lives around. But when was the last time that you rearranged your calendar to be with God? Or is God just kind of an afterthought that you stroll into and don't prioritize? Loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength has to be more pervasive in our lives. And it is important to understand the distinctions between these four things. So first, loving God with your heart, it's setting all of your affections, your inclination, and your will on it. And it's, this is important, it's based on experience and encounter. So the first time that I met Jana, I saw her and I thought, she's beautiful, right? And, and then from there, I interacted with her a little bit. I thought, she's funny, she's intriguing. I wanna hang out with her. So I start to hang out with her and get to know who she is. And immediately, my calendar changed, right? I started to orient my life around her. And I think that's kind of the picture of what this looks like. How do we order our lives around God and the things of God? So loving God with your soul then is responding to that instinctual thing inside of you that says there has to be more to this life. It's that that part of us that was given in Genesis 2 when when God breathed into Adam's uh, nostrils the breath of life and it says he became a living being. Living being is the same word for soul there. Some say that the soul includes our personalities. It's what's unique to each of us. So it's using how you're uniquely wired to bring God glory. Love God with your soul. 
Loving God with your mind then is something, I think it comes fairly naturally to us in, in the Western context, right? We value education. We've got more information at our fingertips than we could ever ingest, right? And, and that's definitely what it's talking about. Jesus is talking about thinking clearly and seeking truth, but he's also talking about uh, a mind that's informed by an experience with God. So the word for mind and the word for heart are interchanged all the time throughout scripture, these same two words. So, I knew a lot about the Rocky Mountains when I was a kid. Uh, Mom and Dad ordered Ranger Rick and uh, uh, what, what, National Geographic magazine, all these types of things. I could tell you about climate. I could tell you about some elevation stuff. I could tell you about wildlife. But it wasn't until a family vacation in high school. We took a 15-passenger van with all of us out there, and uh, we fished in a glacier lake at like 10 or 12,000 feet. And there's like a snow face on the other side of the lake. And we have a big family, and I think about all of us caught our limit of trout. You guys remember that? Um, it wasn't until we went sledding on the snow caps in the middle of summer, and we saw a family of wild moose or meese or mice or whatever you call them <laughs> strolling across this lake we were fishing in. After that experience, I knew all this stuff from Ranger Rick, and then I applied it from to experience. And now I'm at a place where, like, Every chance I have to go to Colorado, I'm there because of that experience. This is what it looks like to love God with your mind. Pastor and author John Piper said, if a person doesn't move from an intellectual awareness of God and right thinking about God to an emotional embrace of God, he hasn't loved God with his mind. The mind is not yet loved until it hands off its thoughts to the emotions where they are embraced. And then the mind and the heart are working what feels like such harmony, and you experience it as both intellectual and affectional love for God. The last one on the list then is loving God with your strength. And it does have to do with your body, so using your physical body to, to bring glory to God. But the word for strength in here is actually the word very. So it's loving God with your veriness. It doesn't really work in English, right? So loving God with your veriness is, yes, your body, but then it's everything else that's at your disposal that you could possibly use to bring glory to God. It's your marriage or singleness. It's uh, your relationships. It's your workplace. It's your skills. It's kind of, uh, it's your creativity. It's everything else that you have that you can muster up to bring God glory. God desires our affection in every aspect of our lives. Is this true of us today? All right, so let's get back to the text. Jesus answered a longstanding question by agreeing with the religious leader, saying there's only one God, and the greatest commandment is to love God with everything. But in typical Jesus fashion, he added a twist. So let's pick up uh, verse 31. So the first commandment, love God. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And this is another statement about what worship looks like. Love. But it's a statement about loving what God loves, people. The third thing I want you to take away and write this down is true worship means loving what God loves. True worship requires that we love God and that we love people. 1 John 4 says that if you say you love God, but you hate a brother or a sister, you're a liar. You can't love God and not love people. God's heart has always been turned towards people. People are the ones that he created and gave his image. People are the ones that he came and gave his life for. 
It's people that Psalm 17 says are the apple of God's eye, or Psalm 139, I think, right, says that God's affectionate thoughts about people are uncomprehendable, and they're more than we can count. It's people, you and me and every person from every tribe, every tongue, every nation and race, faith system, sexual orientation, political preference, socioeconomic background, family lineage, denominational preference, rich, poor, influential, and conspicuous, and whatever other dividing lines we come up with, it's people who were made in the image of God, who are loved by God, and who should be loved by God's people. That's you and me. And I want to camp on this for a second. There are two ways that I want to challenge us. How are we first loving each other here as a family of God? And then second, how do we love people outside the walls of Eagle Church? So first, how do we, welcome, how, how do we uh, love people here and work through conflict and make new people feel welcome and feel like they're part of this family? How are we doing with that? And I've got to be honest, as a pastor, I struggle with this sometimes. Like there, there are some Sundays where I want to slip out the back door because I know there's possibly a difficult interaction that could happen, right? Or I'm somebody that doesn't want to work through conflict. I, I avoid conflict at all costs. How are we doing with this? There's a great picture of what this could and should look like in Colossians 3. Starting in verse 12 says, Therefore is God's chosen people holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Get this. Over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. So here among us, it should be different. The way that we love each other is a direct testimony to a watching world. In John 13, Jesus said, by this everyone you will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The world is watching us. How are we doing? Sorry about the lights. The second challenge is, how are we loving those outside the walls of the church? Those who, who are the opposite social and political and moral and ethical spectrum than we are. The people who would never step foot into a church? How do we love them? Worship was never meant to be kept inside the walls of a church. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. So if you follow Jesus, that's you. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Here it is, that God, was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, which we should say amen. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. So we, amen, are given the objective of proclaiming that out of love, God has made a way for the world to be reconciled to himself. That's good news. And scripture's clear that we're to be reconciled to each other as well. God is all about reconciliation. And I just need to, I'm gonna jump on a soapbox here real quick. Let's talk about social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. I don't snap, I don't like it. Um, 
But I can't begin to say how disheartened I am when I jump on these social media platforms and see followers of Jesus engage in ridiculous debates about political and ethical and moral and social situations. Yes, God has a standard, but the higher standard, I believe, is that we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. Stepping into these places is divisive. Let's move these conversations from Facebook and Instagram to sit at a table with somebody who's different than us, to hear from somebody who's had a different life experience. And then only in interaction, like we've been talking about, only in proximity and context can we begin to lavish the love of Jesus on people. That's when real transformation and life change is gonna happen in this world. I wasn't gonna share this, so... um, I think we're good on time. I, last, night, um, last night, I was here preparing, and I'm not, uh, I normally don't preach, obviously. And it was a beautiful night, and so I decided to go outside and walk around. And um, <clears throat> I, I was walking through the parking lot out here, and there's nobody here. And this car pulls in and goes to the back of the lot and parks and shuts off its lights and rolls up its windows. And it happens you know, quite a bit around here. And uh, it's a little, a little bit shady, but I, um, <laughs> my wife says, you shouldn't do this sort of thing, but I did. I walked up to the car and uh, I walk up to them and I say, hey, how's it going? And they, they go, oh, we're, we're good. We're just hanging out. And I was just like, okay, cool. Um, and I'm, I'm actually really embarrassed by my response here. I said, um, well, cool. Uh, well, this is private property. And uh, we have church at 10 o'clock on Sundays. We'd love to have you come back then. And they were like, they were like, okay, cool. And they left. And, um, <laughs> and I just, I came, I walked around and I'm, I'm preparing this message, right? And I, I come back around, I come inside and I was sitting here just kind of praying and I just felt the Holy Spirit convict my heart. He said, man, you just missed it. You're preaching this message and you just missed an opportunity. Like, look at who Jesus interacted with. Like, I was the person in the back of the parking lot not that long ago. Jesus brought, he brought in the prostitute. He brought in the adulterer. He brought in the addict. He brought in the tax collector and the sinner. These are the people that he dined with. And I just missed it. I missed an opportunity. And I just felt like, I feel like right now the Lord wants me to repent for that. Like if that's you, if you've had that kind of experience where you've gone into a church or you've you've interacted with somebody who claims Jesus and you felt shut out, you felt like you weren't good enough. Man, that's not Jesus. That's a lie. That's not Jesus. Jesus invites you to the table. And so I just repent for that if that's you. And on behalf of of Christendom for the last several decades, I'm sorry that's been your experience. That's not who Jesus is. We, as followers of Jesus, should be ministers of reconciliation, inviting people in. So let's get back to the text here. Jesus gave us a clear picture of what true worship looks like. It's loving God, it's loving people. So how did this teacher of the law respond? 
We'll pick up in verse 32. So the guy says to Jesus, well said, teacher, you think? Uh, You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then, no one asked any questions. And as we close this time, I wanna leave us, I'm gonna set us up with some space to reflect. This uh, teacher of the law, his response to to Jesus was really profound because his job, his livelihood, his faith system was all built up on religious practice. And he says that more important than any of the religious stuff is loving God and loving people. He hit on the essence of what it means to worship God and he articulated what the essence of our faith is. Jesus' response, however, would be a little unsettling. And I may be... I may be interjecting something that's not there, but Jesus didn't say like, hey, teacher of the law, you're in, big fella. You answered correctly. He didn't say that, right? Compare it to like his interaction with the criminal on the cross who never did a religious thing his whole life, who deserved to be hanging there beside Jesus. He said to that guy, today, you're with me in paradise. That's not the promise he gave to this guy. I wonder what the lawyer did or the the teacher of the law did following that interaction. I think he had two options. The first one obviously being the easiest was just to go back to life. Go back to teaching about the law, go back to his secure job and his nice income, go back to his social influence. He could could go right back to religiosity, but he just missed truth standing right in front of him. The other option that he could, is that he could lay down all the religious stuff he'd been settling for and he could love God and he could love people. And this is the hard way because it would cost him something much. It cost him a lot. Probably he'd have to quit his job. He'd probably lose his social influence. He'd probably have to rethink his system of beliefs that he built his life on. He'd have to give up all he knew to be true. This morning, we're gonna go to the communion table But before we do, um, I think it's really important that we spend some time and reflect. On every chair when you came in, uh, there there was a piece of paper with a series of questions, a blank note card, and a pen. And with the paper, I want you to work through these questions on your own. The first one is, am I loving God with every aspect of my life? If not, what am I holding back and why? Ask him to reveal that to you. The second question, is there a person or people who I have not loved like Christ has loved me? Who is this person? What would Jesus have me do? I want you to write the name of the person down. Be specific. um, and, And then just spend some time praying for that person. And then also asking the Lord to reveal the motives of your own heart. And then ask him what he'd have you do. And then the third question uh, and I actually want you to write this on the note card, and we'll come back to it in a minute. But the third question is, what is the next step God would have me take to fully love him or better reflect his love to those around me? And this morning, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, maybe that's your next step. Just, just put a stake in the ground and say, I'm following Jesus. Or maybe your next step is to be baptized at, at Bash here in a few weeks and declare publicly, like, I'm all in. I want to love God with everything. 
Maybe it's to follow up with somebody you've had conflict with or to step into somebody's life who's a little bit messy and it might be uncomfortable. Maybe it's confessing a prejudice that you've been carrying towards somebody or a group of people. So again, answer that third question on the note card. Don't write your names on it. It's not school. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But finally, I want you to think about, uh, this isn't on your paper, but think about who you're going to tell. Right? So if, if you feel like the Lord's bringing something to your mind, who are you going to tell? Because I believe that, that spiritual growth cannot happen in isolation. I firmly believe that. It takes the community. That's why the church is here. So find somebody. If you don't feel like you have somebody, come talk to me during communion or after their service. Or we've got tons of amazing people around here that would love to, to interact with you about that. So we're just going to take some time. There's going to be music playing over the sound system. And you're just going to have a few minutes to yourself here. And then I'll come back up and uh, dismiss us to the table. So let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you um, that you are a God whose love and grace and mercy is far beyond what we can understand. We thank you that you don't require some bullet list of expectations for us. You just require us to love you and to love people. Help us to get that right today. And Lord, in these next few minutes, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would speak. You would speak truth, not guilt, not shame, but truth, maybe conviction, full of peace and love that comes from you. So we commit these next several minutes to you in Jesus' name. Amen.